Welcome to the FinTech One-on-One Podcast, episode number 362. This is your host, Peter Renton, chairman and co-founder of Lended FinTech. Before we get started, I want to talk about the 10th annual Lended FinTech USA event. We are so excited to be back in the financial capital of the world, New York City, in person, on May 25th and 26th. It feels like fintech is on fire right now with so much change happening, and we will be distilling all that for you at New York's biggest fintech event of the year. We have our best lineup of keynote speakers ever with leaders from many of the most successful fintechs and incumbent banks. This is shaping up to be our biggest event ever as sponsorship support is off the charts. You know you need to be there, so find out more and register at lendit.com. Today on the show, I'm delighted to welcome Peter Frank and Asher Hoshberg of i80 Group. Now, i80 Group's a really interesting company. They are an investment firm, but they really are somewhat unique in the fact that they focus on debt capital and they focus on debt capital in significant amounts. And they really work with companies that that are capital intensive businesses. Let's face it, lots of fintech companies are. I mean, a lot of big names that you would know of, companies like Moneyline, like Open Door, Peer Street, Capchase, Divi Homes. These are all companies that they're working with providing collateralized debt capital. And we talk about how they do that, what's sort of their the risk appetite they have and how they kind of underwrite that risk. We talk about you know when it makes sense for companies to sort of move on to other forms of capital and what kind of role that I-80 Group plays there, they really see themselves as a long-term capital partner to a lot of these companies. We also chat about the lending space in general today and what it looks like, taking into account some of the pullback with VC capital that's happened so far this year. They provide their perspective on that and much more. It was a fascinating interview. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the podcast, Peter and Asher. Oh, welcome. Okay, let's kick it off by giving the listeners a little bit of background about yourself. So, Peter, I'd like to, you know, let's start with you. Let's talk about sort of what you've done in your career before I-80. So, I joined I-80 Group in 2019, actually. And prior to that, and just earlier throughout my career, I've been working, call it in the specialty finance fintech sector, both in the U.S. and globally. Uh, immediately prior to here, I worked with a larger private equity fund partners group affiliated fund on growth capital to fintech and specialty finance companies, largely focused on emerging markets, but also in the US and exploring opportunities here, investing in debt as well as equity. Spent the early parts of my career doing similar things and also working in microfinance as well in uh, emerging markets. Right. Got it. Got it. And Asher? I started my career with a decade on Wall Street, split between private equity and credit at Goldman Sachs, and then public equities at a long short fund. I then realized that I wanted to get my hands dirty and build a product I was more passionate about, which led me to Circle Up, which is a a fintech out in San Francisco, where I built basically the the CPG lending business and and ran it for a, a number of years. And then after scaling that, As an operator, the investor in me realized there was a a sizable gap in the financing market, particularly the credit financing market for fintech companies. And that is what led me to IEC. 
So that's a great kind of background. Let's get into what IAD Group does. You know, how do you describe the company? So IAD is a private credit fund. IAD is actually the road between San Francisco and New York. <laughs> so the vision for the fund is to blend you know, Silicon Valley's innovation with New York's kind of more traditional finance. We also have an office in Montreal. We began investing in 2017 with a mission to drive what we call, quote, the kind of innovation economy forward. Our customers are a particular kind of fintech company that originates some type of asset. It can be a hard asset like a home or an automobile. It can be a soft asset like a loan or receivable. But if it's an asset, you know, we can work with you. To keep it simple, you know, we primarily offer, I'd say, one product to early stage fintech and prop tech companies. We call those collateral-backed credit facilities. We do invest by other structures, but that's the predominant one. We typically partner with early stage fintechs and prop techs at the seed and the series A stage, although we are doing more at the series B and C stages. We typically offer capital commitments in you know, that early stage companies grow into over time. So these are multi-year capital commitments. They usually range in the kind of 30 to $200 million zone. And you know, besides, let's say, the entrepreneurs and the companies they run, you know, we believe our primary partners are venture capital firms. You know, IED's capital is highly complementary to a VC's capital. And we often invest somewhere between five to 50 times the amount of capital a VC would invest in a given company. So we can really supercharge a, a VC company's growth. That's the summary. It's 100% debt, right? You're not investing equity at all. We do have some alignment with warrants. But yes, it is all debt. Right, right. So then obviously, you know, in this space, you've got you know, Silicon Valley Bank that has been established for decades now doing, uh, you know, providing debt on the back of these, some of these VC deals. So how are you guys different to what, what they're offering? I think that's really to what Asher said, them being collateralized loan facilities, typically with a traditional venture debt product. Like you said, the company raises 10 or $20 million and they get a three to $6 million term loan that's call it two to four years or something like that. And it's really based on underwriting the recent debt raise and when the next round is going to be and the probability of that round happening and how big it will be. Whereas I'd say what we do is much more specific for capital intensive businesses, businesses that are scaling their balance sheet and whose business really revolves around some sort of capital intensive product. This could, on a really simple basis, just be a simple term loan, or it could be purchasing property or something like that. But there's always an asset-based element to the company's core business that we're, we're allowing them to scale. Okay. Okay. Got it. So then the whole sort of debt facility business has been around for some time. There's been a lot of companies doing various different things. So what was the opportunity you guys saw that was needed in, you know, when you're looking at the traditional warehouse line type operation what what was missing that you felt like you needed to really to go in and and change yeah absolutely and to your point asset-based lending and warehouse facilities is not a net new innovation or idea i'd say what differentiates us a little bit is that we are a pure play credit fund completely dedicated to the venture-backed ecosystem we're working with companies as early as late seed stage and scaling with them to Series B, Series C. And I think what is a little bit different about call it the traditional ABS world or the asset-based lending world and where we play is just the uncertainty of the company's track record and how new they are. 
And there's a lot of nuance into working with companies that are, are that early and that new to market. And I think what we try to do and what we sort of think of as our special sauce and what makes the job hard and interesting is structuring a facility that one gives us security that it's not going to be over leveraged, that someday we're going to get our money back, but also that doesn't lock the company into product market fit that they haven't developed yet, that doesn't prescribe them to kind of going after a customer that may not be the right fit and lock them into kind of a debt facility that's where the market isn't necessarily there for their business. Got it. Got it. Okay. So then, so what types of companies are you mainly focused on? I mean, you talked about the stage of the company, but what about the industry? Can you give us some examples? In terms of asset classes, we are fairly agnostic if the company is truly tech-enabled, and that often means there's a VC backing, so that's a critical component. Generally, we want you know, great businesses with strong customer value propositions, differentiated technology, and strong distribution channels, essentially a, a strong equity story. And we believe that that's where we differentiate ourselves a little bit, which is relative to other more traditional lenders, we care deeply about whether a fintech will actually grow and thrive and become a, a much bigger company over time, as much as we care about kind of the downside protection. I think a lot of lenders just focus on the downside protection, particularly collateral-based lenders. We focus as much on that as you know, the ability for the company to scale. So when you look at you know, our portfolio, you'll see a number of companies doing follow-on rounds. And that's super important for us, particularly some of the, the earlier companies we've worked with. So whether you know, it's companies like Capchase or you know, others in the portfolio, Moneyline is now public. You know, we have a lot of companies that have just you know, started with some core technology or data advantage and then have now you know, grown meaningfully. Right. So do you grow with these companies? Do you like you put more capital in than a typical VC would? But then a lot of the companies you talk about are going back for more rounds. Do you sort of upsize your round as they grow? Exactly. Yeah. And the way our product works is we'll offer, let's say, a $100 million facility. A company may only drop $5 million on day one. And then for the next two years, we'll draw the remaining 95. So we'll have an ongoing relationship with the company as they go through their investment period with us. Gotcha. Gotcha. Are you 100% US focused or are you, do you look outside this country? The short answer is we do look outside the US, but we predominantly focus on the US. Uh, that being said, we closed our first European deal uh, a couple months ago, a company called Ritmo in Europe. And we also are looking at Latin America. But I would say historically, it's been most of the US. We are going outside the US for select opportunities. Right, right. Okay. I'm interested in the analysis piece because you've got, you say you're going in doing a debt facility to pretty young companies that obviously have a different risk profile than what a bank would look at. So can you tell us about how you're assessing the credit risk for these startups? It's really in two prongs. There's the traditional asset-based credit prong, where you're looking at similar things that you would maybe see in a, a securitization much later on in the company's life. But in traditional credit analysis, right, you're looking at the liquidity profile of the underlying assets, their income generating capacity, right, how much excess spread over the debt service coverage ratios, and so on and so forth, kind of what you would typically see from a credit fund. But the second part and a bit of what we've been talking about is, are they going to be able to develop a good business? Are they going to be able to scale and develop a financially sustainable business for the long term? And that's in a lot of ways, a venture capital underwriting process as well. We're going in and saying, yeah, this is a good idea on paper, but is this the right management team to execute it? 
Do they have the right partnerships and customer acquisition channels? Does the lifetime value and the stickiness of the actual product substantiate how much they actually have to pay to acquire these customers? And I'd say that depending on the situation, right, we can look at those prongs. They carry similar weight depending on the opportunity. They both have to be there. We can't do a really good credit deal that's never going to scale. And we can't do a credit deal where its company is going to scale incredibly quickly, but where we're looking at kind of a potential deterioration in the actual quality of the asset. So both of those, I think, both carry a lot of weight within our process. Right, right. Okay. So then, yeah, you say you do a debt facility, say it's a $100 million facility. I mean, are there kind of metrics they have to hit along the way? You're talking about companies that are unknown as far as how they can scale. I mean, what do you make the $100 million available no matter what, or are there certain criteria they have to hit to keep that facility in place? The company has to, right? We're only scaling our capital as they scale their asset base. So there's sort of a natural limitation and the natural liquidity components that have to be there with the company. So as the company goes, right, a company that's only raised $5 million, it's going to be really hard to generate an asset base of $100 million to scale the debt facility. So the two go hand in hand, but we are very focused on the companies having proper liquidity on their balance sheet, acting responsibly in terms of what does their burn and runway look like? How is their shareholder support? All those more traditional credit metrics as well. Yeah. And just to jump in there, it's important to realize that when we lend, we always lend a certain percentage of the asset base. So if the asset base is ten dollars, you know, we're maybe lending eight dollars or nine dollars on that. You know, so we make available a hundred million dollars to the company. But if the asset base they present us is only ten dollars at any given time, the max that we can have out the door in terms of credit would be that, you know, eight or nine figure. That makes sense. So so then where does your deal flow come from? I'd say three buckets. The first bucket is companies themselves, what we call originators, but you know, other fintech, other prop tech companies who have worked with us or have had conversations with us and say, oh, you'd be great for my friend, colleague, peer over here. You know, we always think it's a really good sign of our relationship and what we're trying to build as people that you know our customers want to refer us to other customers, of course. That's the first bucket. The second bucket, not too surprisingly, are, are VCs. You know, we try to work with all different types of VCs and try to, you know, every day, you know, meet more and more. Third, I would say is all the other. So whether it's, you know, service providers, lawyers, accountants, any other professional that we have in our network that knows what we're doing. Right. Got it. So then do you have like any formal arrangements with VCs? How do you kind of work with them? We find our product is very complementary with VCs and we don't have any JV partnerships or really think it's necessary to have things that call it contractual arrangements of that extent. I mean, realistically, we want to work with all VCs. We're very open to meeting groups that have kind of very similar views or focuses on fintech and similar views on quality of company and go-to-market approaches and so forth. So we want to cast a wide net and work with a variety of groups. Right. Okay. So then what happens as the company that you're providing the facility to, as they scale, they get more established and clearly you're going to be more expensive than bank capital. You know, what do you do once they get to the stage where they really could get a bank credit line? I mean, what uh, do you help them do that or how does that transition happen? Philosophically, we absolutely believe that more mature companies 
should lower their cost of capital as their track record develops. And we absolutely want to help them on that journey. It could mean a lot of different things. We could bring in a bank and you know be a partner with the bank and lower the kind of the blended cost to the to the company. You know, we could offer them an upsize, as we talked about earlier, and give them more capital than our initial commitment and, and do that on different terms. We really believe that we want to be a, a long-term partner to these companies and find the right capital solution for each part of their, their life cycle. We've worked well, obviously with companies at the very, very early stage at the seed and A round, but we've also are really proud of our companies that have gone kind of full circle. And you know, one example of that is Moneylion, who went public uh, last year, who's still a customer of ours. So even though they could get cheaper credit Elsewhere, they you maintain a relationship even when a company is really established, it sounds like. The short answer is yes. It's always unclear exactly what the cost of capital is for different folks. From our standpoint, we want to work with partners who value our firm and our relationship and what we're doing, not just the cost. You know, Obviously, capital is a commodity, but we do believe that we help these companies in a variety of different ways that makes it not only the single most important facet. We see that there's really a lot of benefit, even though, right, you look at us compared to a bank and we're going to be higher cost of capital at the early stage for fintechs, we're typically a single source of capital and they grow into getting big capital over time. But I'd say we always still have some level of a value proposition there in one, just having a diverse group of capital partners, not having groups that can don't have the call it the rigidity and the same time horizons for decision making as a bank and that can move fast, that can help fund new products, that can work in different, newer, more innovative areas of their product suite, so to speak. Right. So Ash, I want to go back to something you just said there. You talked about you provide more than just the capital. Can you give a sense of how you're working with your portfolio companies beyond just providing capital? Yeah, I'd say that there's a few different areas, and Peter Frank can chime in as well. I would say the first one is actually designing the financial product or the, the product that the, the company is you know, essentially selling themselves. I think a lot of the companies are still early in their product roadmap and are thinking about different features of the product and how to build them and how customers would respond to them, how to track them, how to monitor, how to report out. And so we really are getting our hands dirty almost every day with our portfolio companies to help them design a better product so that they're more successful. And in the end, you know, we are monitoring that product on an asset level. And so we're very keyed into what the data is saying, what's going on with the product, the trends. And so we are very much an advisor and almost a, um, essentially what comes down to like a, a board member type relationship, although we're not always on the board. It's that level of kind of feedback that we have. And uh, Peter Frank, would you add anything to that? Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think especially early on, because for a lot of these products, bank financing is so important. It's easy for early stage companies to, in some ways, get carried away and find themselves basically developing a product for banks rather than their underlying customer base. And I think one of the things that by being very focused on helping design a product that scales, we try to bring companies back to the product has to work for your customer. It has to work for your business. And then you can figure out a way to make it work for the right buckets of financing after that. You don't want the tail wagging the dog, so to speak. Gotcha. Now that makes sense. We also have a lot of relationships with with VCs and VCs, of course, want to see high quality companies. And so one other benefit that we provide our companies is when you're in our network, we want to introduce you to you know the VCs that may be interested and help you get equity fundraising because obviously equity is very critical to the, the debt outcome as well. So uh, that's another area. Right. That's another thing I want to ask is because you know, last year was and, and 2020 was just the go-go years for fintech with venture capital just 
available. It seemed it seemed like it was infinite for a while there. Yeah, things have tightened up a little bit more this year. You see the mega rounds are not as common as they were in 2021 and 2020. So then how has that sort of changed the market from your perspective? Is there more interest in debt as equity capital has become like less available? I'd say yes. We're still seeing, right, there is a bit of a, a time lag here. So the valuations go down. The next day, we don't see more demand or less demand, right? It takes a number of months, especially as companies that raised at the end of 2021 may not be in market for a little while either. Mm-hmm. That said, for specifically between us and the companies we're directly lending to or the assets of, we haven't seen a lot there yet. And part of that is if you have an asset in intensive or capital intensive product, you're going to need our type of financing, whether or not you're in a a really active VC market or a slower VC market. That said, via looking through, because we work with quite a few groups that work on, call it the small business financing side, we have seen an uptick and increase in demand for capital there. That said, it'll have to be determined how much that grows or how crazy that gets and right how much VCs ultimately pull back. We've definitely seen a lot of noise and heard a lot in the markets about valuations going down significantly, which leads to smaller rounds and so forth. Would a company come to you and say, well, you don't really want to do equity because I don't like the valuation I'm getting and let's just do more debt? Is that because you're sort of collateralized debt? Are you seeing situations like that or has that not really happened yet? That's less of a conversation with us. We will have those conversations with companies, but in terms of we're trying to delay cash burn, you would only come to us to discuss that to the extent that they want more leverage on their underlying assets or they're thinking about a different type of commitment size. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. So then can you give me some sense of the scale you guys are at today? I mean, how much are you funding? So we're working with about 30 borrowers right now, and we have about 1.7 billion active commitments. We were, as Asher mentioned, we were launched in 2016, started lending in 2017, have really been scaling up our platform the last few years. We, I think we're of the belief that we're chasing kind of a, an opportunity in the tens of billions of dollars. I think we saw $100 billion go into fintech fundings last year alone. Mm-hmm. To your point, that was a pretty crazy market. Right. It may not expect that this year, and that's not necessarily a terrible thing. We definitely see a very durable, large opportunity set here. And what about like when you look at the, the lending space, I'm curious to get a sense if you sort of take a step back and you're seeing these fairly early stage companies and you know, obviously lending went through this huge boom in the mid-2010s where there was lots of new companies started and lots of money, and then it seemed to have slowed down. What, what's your sense of the state of fintech lending today? Are, we, are you still seeing good new ideas coming through? Yeah, absolutely. I think it takes shape a little bit differently, and to some extent, it's marketed a little bit differently. right? I think sort of 1.0 of this was a lot of the marketplace lenders groups that had very high customer acquisition costs. And that's where they sort of ran into to some issues down the road. I think as partially as a response to that, and just because it's an interesting business model, we're seeing a lot of not so much innovation in peer-to-peer lending, or we're seeing it much more on the go-to-market side, right? People developing interesting partnership opportunities for going to market. I'm sure you hear a lot about embedded financing and that idea. But Ultimately, this is sort of a right a flavor of buy now, pay later. 
right? How do you develop partnerships that can lead to zero cost acquisition channels and right sort of natural credit enhancement through the products that people are buying? Mm-hmm. Yeah, just to jump in on that, I think in the end, a lot of this comes down to data. There's obviously a product experience aspect, like a, a Robinhood is actually an incredible product for a lot of people to use. But I think a lot of the products that we see are really fueled by better data that's coming from more of the source. When I say the source, that could be like an Amazon marketplace or a Shopify app, or it could be some type of like subscription management tool that's managing SaaS revenues. And so there's all these new applications that are essentially spitting out new sources of data. And the fintechs are basically finding new ways to plug into that data and underwrite and assess risk better. And also on top of that, make a much better user experience. So then how are you funding these facilities? Uh, where, where's your capital coming from? So we publicly stated that one of our anchor investors is a firm called Iconic. It is a large family office of successful technology entrepreneurs on the, the West Coast. They have you know, a, a great reputation in the industry, so we wanted to, to publicly talk about that. But we have uh, many other investors. We just don't talk about them publicly, but they're mostly institutions. And you know, I think we appeal to people who really understand that uh, there's more to credit than just you know, a high-yield bond fund or anything like that. Right. And so you have capacity yourselves to continue to grow pretty rapidly? Yes, that's correct. Okay, so then let's close maybe with with sort of looking down the road. Like, what are you working on that's exciting? I mean, what's next for IAD Group? You know, we're, I'd say, still proving out our fund and our model. So, you know, it's, it's steady eddy for us. One, I'd say, is just seeing our portfolio companies thrive to get more financing, to get larger and help more of their customers. That's one. Second is offering, I'd say, more mature fintech companies a more holistic capital solution. To your point earlier, Peter, about whether we can work with banks or how the the cost of capital journey goes, we want to be there for all parts of that and continuing kind of partnering through the life cycle. So introducing new products or mechanisms to do that. And then the third, and probably the most important is we want to continue to build our brand with our customers and our reputation. I I think as anyone who knows the VC world understands reputation and what you you put out into the world is really, really important. And so, you know, by doing this podcast and other more public settings, we just want to share what we're doing and you know, make sure that you know, we're staying top of mind for folks. Right. Well, everyone's going to know about you now. You've been on this podcast. So. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> anyway, uh, Asher, Peter, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. Really, it's a fascinating discussion and uh, good luck. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. Yeah, clearly there is a need in the market for companies like I80 Group because so many fintech companies that are launching, that have launched in the last couple of years, they have unique capital needs. Unlike traditional tech companies, these are often very capital intensive. And you know, a company like I80 Group is really filling a need, as you just heard, that these companies, you know, they need sometimes massive amounts of capital, particularly if you're in the real estate space. You're talking to even scale to a a few hundred transactions, you need masses amounts of capital. So they really have, I think, filled a niche here pretty pretty intelligently. And uh, I think they've got, got a bright future ahead of them. Anyway, on that note, I will sign off. I very much appreciate you listening and I'll catch you next time. Bye.